Hello, everybody, and Hello. welcome to the Macaw Podcast Universe. My name is Micah Macaw. My name is Jordan Macaw. And it is the year 2023. Can you believe that, Jordan? No, because it's not upon this recording. No, don't tell them that. Uh, this is uh, live. This is well, a live 2023 recording. 2023 is wild. Those hover cars finally made it. They did. They did. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so here we are. And maybe we have some new listeners. Who knows? So uh, we're starting a brand new series. And I think it's time that we not only tell people what this podcast is about, but remind them of the rules of the podcast. Oh, just because it's a new year? It's a new year. Let's give a little refresher. Even Well, the tagline. Yes, what what could that possibly is, be? We exist to prove people wrong when they say sequels are never better than the originals. I don't even think people are saying that anymore. That's how that's how big of waves we've made with this that podcast. That is true. People don't say that anymore because of us. <laughs> it's because of us yeah. and the reach of this podcast. Now, some people, and, and there are people who are some of the biggest fans of this podcast we know, and they will still suggest series that don't qualify. Guys, Stop suggesting series that don't have at least three movies, and not just three movies, but they have to have come out in theaters. The, yeah, we know. We made one exception one time with the Fear Street movies because uh -huh. it was a very had a very interesting production that did yep. involve some theater stuff. So yep. that that's the one exception that we've made. Other than that, if it's not been in theaters, don't come knocking. Right. And and there are certain you know, because the landscape has changed quite a bit. Streaming is somewhat of a viable option, although 2022 taught us that it's not nearly as viable mm -hmm. as the theaters. But there's still some things like, like say, if we cover the Alien versus Predator series at some point, like, I mean, both series and then the AVP as well, we will definitely cover the 2022 movie Prey. Yeah. It, it, you know, because it's like, that's a legitimate studio movie that because they're, well, actually, it was smart to not release that in theaters because the previous Predator movie made no money. But all that to say, th there are certainly exceptions when it comes to streaming. But, you know, suggesting, like, do the Cinderella animated series. It's like, well, only one of those came out in theaters. Yeah. That doesn't count. We're not doing direct-to-DVD because we don't, we don't want to get stuck that. in the that vortex. That would be boring. Did someone really suggest that? I, I know that in the past people have suggested, like, Disney princess-type movies. You it know? would be boring, too, wouldn't it? I think it would. I think it would. It'd be fun to talk about the first one yeah, and maybe the second one, but once you get into like three or four. You're just talking about the same thing. Yeah. So, and maybe your new listener, we got plenty of series to choose from in the past, but today we're doing one that I'm surprised to say has actually been requested by quite a few yeah. listeners, um, and it is our oldest series to date. The reigning champion was The Godfather that we've covered. But today it's beat out by the Dollars Trilogy, or some call it the Blood Money Trilogy, or some call it the Man With No Name Trilogy. And like this first movie is A Fistful of Dollars. Now, this is an insanely influential movie. This is, I have a question right off the bat. Yeah. On IMDb, the poster for it, one, is just so cool. And I'm kind of wondering if it's the first poster, the original poster. I believe that is. So the so it says a fistful of dollars is the first motion picture of its kind. It won't be the last. What does that mean? Well, we can talk about it. Okay. So that's part of I got to take us down film history lane here. So the western is obviously a very American experience. Uh-huh. 
Cowboys and I know it's an outdated term, but for sake of this, the Cowboys and Indians, Mm -hmm. that is that is like a classic American thing. Yep. Now, it's also highly influenced by Japanese cinema Mm -hmm. and the samurai. So there's a lot of like I think we can credit like Akira Kurosawa with a lot of what this becomes in America. But today we're going to be talking about the next step after like the American Western. And that's what's going to make this one unique and so influential. This movie, I see, I didn't realize that this movie, I knew it was influential, but I did not realize it was like insanely influential. Yeah. Um, but, but first of all, let's talk about our experience with the movie. Yeah. You go first. Um, this is, I've seen bits and pieces of all of the movies, uh-huh. but I've not sat down, press play on them. Ever. Yeah, because they're always on TV growing up. Yeah, and this is like a classic. If anyone has a dad, yep. If they're flipping through the channels and a movie starring Clint Eastwood is on, that dad is going to stop at least until the commercial break and watch it. Yes. So this was my t- technically first time seeing it, although I had seen parts of it before. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I also wanted not just our first experience with the movie, but with westerns. Not first experience, just in general. You because, wanted to know? Because we both have dads that are that really like Westerns. Yeah. Because um, for me growing up, it was, I mean, my dad's the classic dad flipping through channels, can't stand something longer than a minute. Yeah. Kind of dad. So it would be rotating between like whatever game is on to whatever Westerns on to whatever other movie might be on to something yeah. else. So I've seen a lot of bits of piece, bits and pieces of yeah. a lot of Westerns. <laughs> yeah. there, and as a kid, there is nothing worse than that. <laughs> as, so, as an adult or any age, flipping well, no, between it, things is not yeah, great. Yeah, but like as a, so kind of growing up, I did not like Westerns. Yeah. Because. Oh, you're saying the genre. I yeah, the saying. genre. Because it was just always so boring. Uh-huh. And I'm sure that a lot of them that were on TV Yes, you got your classics, but it's like John Wayne was in a million freaking movies. Not yeah. all of them were good. It's impossible. Right. Westerns is like, Westerns are Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like Pulp Fiction is kind of like Westerns started that pretty yeah. much. Yeah. So um, that that's why for me, it's like Westerns have always been, it, it, it's just like, I don't know if I've actually, at the time when I was a kid, ever saw a good one. Sure. Because like front to back. one, I wouldn't be watching the whole thing. Or two, I think it is like one of those things where a person's like, yeah, I really like Westerns, but it's like, but which, how, what's the percentage of them that are actually like well-known good ones? Yeah. Like good, you know? Well, so, uh, are you done? I'm sorry. I was like, kind of. Oh, okay. Keep going then. Oh, just that. So I, growing up, you know, don't really care for Westerns, avoid them, all this stuff. And then when I was getting into movies in general, getting into that IMDb top one, Two fifty. Yeah. Um, I did watch Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, which is a Sergio Leone mm-hmm. movie, and I remember really liking it. Although I can't remember a lot of that movie. Yeah. Um, and I think that was kind of like, oh, not all westerns are bad. And I'm <laughs> yeah, sure yeah. by the time I saw that, Django was out. Yeah. So you know when Django came out, that it was like, whoa, this is really really good, and I don't really like this time period. Yeah. In a way. Um. So I've I've since come around on a lot. Cormac McCarthy's helped a lot. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Um you, people should read the uh Horses trilogy. 
mm-hmm. by Cormac McCarthy. It is some of the best books ever written in this universe. And they're I'm westerns. Glad, glad you clarified which universe. Yeah, this one. Universe 616. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for me, I have seen this movie. This is my second time watching it. The first time I watched it, I was watching the Dollars trilogy. Somewhere along the way, though, I didn't. I just didn't watch the one we're going to watch next uh, uh, for weird. a few dollars more. Or I watched like half of it or something like that. And so I haven't actually finished it, but I have definitely finished this one. So yeah. this was the second time I've seen it. And then, of course, there's the scene in Back to the Future Part 3 where he does what happens at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm familiar with this movie. I'm familiar with Clint Eastwood. As far as Westerns go, I definitely grew up watching a lot of Clint Eastwood-specific Westerns. Yeah. Hang em High, Outlaw Josie Whale, um, uh, the, uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And then, and then there's a few others like Silverado, The Magnificent Seven. So it was fairly influential. Um, I think Hang em High, I, I, no, no, it's, yeah, it's a different one. Never mind, won't get into it. But what I, what I was realizing while reading up about this movie and gathering my notes is that this this movie and there's going to be a couple of other exceptions that we'll talk about, but this is kind of like the turning point for Westerns. So yeah. this is like, to put it into today's standards, this is like the dark night of Westerns mm-hmm. where, okay, you had like the version of Westerns, this movie comes out and now all Westerns are different. Yeah. Because before this, you have like the John Wayne Western where it's like, I am a pure hero. Yeah. That's it. And then this movie is like, hey, a guy strolls into town. He's not a good guy. He just wants to make some money. He's not a bad guy. Yeah. He's an anti-hero. Yeah. And he, like, does stuff. He's, like, morally questionable. And there's a lot more, like, violence. They're, like, fairly, like, gratuitous violence for the time. And I have a question. Yeah. Is it, uh, because I haven't seen all the Westerns under the sun, but is it possible that this movie is so successful and his poncho outfit is so successful and iconic that we could never recreate it again because it would be too much of a, uh, just copying this movie because the poncho kicks ass. It looks so good in this movie. And you just, I never see that in a Western. Um, which I know a lot of not all westerns take place in Texas Texas Mexico yeah. border. Well, I think you it's always hearkening back to this. It just movie. looks so good and you just don't see it. But I believe Django has a poncho as but certain that's scenes. Absolutely hearkening back to this. No, absolutely. But Micah? I'm saying it's pretty Micah? dang successful. I need you to acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> and I I think the Hateful Eight also has poncho stuff as well. Yeah, I'm talking about other westerns though. Not yeah. not like recent things. I think we would find a ton with yeah, the probably. poncho. Yeah. But I mean, nothing is a, as iconic as Clint Eastwood in a no, poncho. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, th- this is like one of the most iconic performances mm-hmm. ever, ever of any movie. So, but let's, let's dive into, should I, should I, well, I'll go here. So this is what is called a spaghetti Western. For those who don't know, that is, it, it's like, the loner anti-hero with huge close-up shots, this type of music, it's a Western made by an Italian. And I think spaghetti's really appropriate. Well, I didn't know, like, the shooting style was part of it. 
Well, this movie like defines all of that. Hmm. So, and this spurns off like, so spurns off. You know yeah. that expression everybody says. This movie like creates this genre basically. Yeah. Well, we'll again, we'll get into the specifics, but um, so and and the term spaghetti western is kind of if you think of it, it's kind of a great example because when Italians came to America, uh, they they created spaghetti in the way that we eat spaghetti, spaghetti. And meatballs. Yeah, spaghetti and meatballs. Now, if you go to Italy, you can't find spaghetti and meatballs. And if you can, you it's probably don't want to get it. Because they don't make it there. So it's like an Americanized... Well, just, hang on, well, hang on. Just me, for me, sorry. What? Okay, go ahead. I just, you know, I, when people say that, it's like, oh, whatever. But I, we were talking from experience. Yeah. When we were in Italy, spaghetti and meatballs is my favorite meal. I never saw it anywhere. And I couldn't, I, we never saw it once in Italy and we looked it up and it's when Italian immigrants came to America and were poor. Yeah. All they could afford were, you know, canning their tomatoes uh-huh. and getting cheap meat and making meatballs. And that's why it's an Italian American classic. And, and that's a perfect use of spaghetti Western because it's like, it's an Italian making an American thing. Yeah. So it's like the perfect phrasing for it. Yeah. Instead. Yeah. So anyway, actually, I'm really glad you cut me off because you've made the point more succinct, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but there are examples pre this movie of Europeans making Westerns. So we can go all the way back to the Lumiere brothers who are like founders of film. Some of the founders of film and they made, uh, westerns in 1895 and 1896 when westerns were happening yeah right (laughs) and then um here are just a couple of notable ones made by europeans there's there's some others but i'm just going through the history here there is the girl of the west in 1910 and then the father of sergio leone directs a movie called a name i actually didn't write down his name i bet it's cool I, i just gotta look it up okay uh, but the father of Sergio Leone makes a movie called La Vampire, Indiana in 1913. Say it again. La Vampire, Indiana, which is about a vampire in the West. Okay, are we watching that movie? Because uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's in father's ni- name is Roberto Roberti. Great, glad you <laughs> glad you got that. But that was in 1913. So those are a couple of of uh, uh, notable ones. Um, but here we go. The first American-British Western filmed in Spain was called The Sheriff of Fractured Jaw in 1958 by Raoul Walsh. So that predates this movie. Then you have Savage Guns in 1961, which was filmed in Spain. And then in 1961, an Italian company co-produced, a, uh, co-produced this French movie called Cast of Violence. I hope I got that name right. And then in 1963, Italian-Spanish testers gunfight at Red Sands, Implacable 3, gunfight at High Noon. So all of this to say, there are other examples of Italians and Europeans making Western movies. Isn't, um, I can't remember his name, but I think he's real. Um, and Landscapers, remember that she, Lilia's Coleman, Coleman's character was like obsessed with that. Her and her husband were obsessed with that French actor. Yeah, I can't who remember Who I think his was name. really well known for Westerns. And I think that was yeah. like during the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember his yeah. name though. Um, and then in 1865, Burns Bozzetto releases an animated Western parody. Whoa. Um, called West and Soda. 
So that's after Fistful of Dollars, but he had started production before they started filming A Fistful of you Dollars. You said 1865, by the way. 1965. Okay. Um, so it's, and it's kind of like, it, all this to say, it's hard to determine what is the actual first spaghetti western. As is with most creative things, there's always like, well, maybe Radiohead did this thing and we think it's the best, but there were like three other bands that had an album that did something like it. At or that whatever. point, it's like who it's not really who did it first. It's who's done it best. Right. It's kind of the thing. And this is the movie that it's, it's a breakthrough movie. And for the sake of the argument, I think we can say this is the defining and like first fully fleshed out spaghetti Western that has the anti-hero, all of those things. And, and Sergio definitely brought the close-ups, the yeah. extreme close-ups to the page um, but having said that, we're also going to talk about the fact that there's a movie by Akira Kurosawa, which I've not seen and I need to, called Yojimbo. Oh, I've heard of that movie, yeah. And this movie is that story. Oh, okay. Now, the hard part is there are a ton of conflicting stories between the writers and the directors of this movie. Oh, and if it was plagiarism or not? Well, Pretty much all of them are like, yeah, I saw Yojimbo, and I was like, that would make a great Western. Sure. But it's like two writers said they suggested it to Sergio. Then Sergio says, no, I actually came up with that on my own. Then all of this other stuff, there's no way to know what really happened. Okay. But Akira Kurosawa's production company, or the the company that produced Yojimbo sued him, and they got $100,000 in settlements. Wow. So it is a ripoff of that movie. Um, well, not so a ripoff. Basically, what but would have been the thing to do you, to buy the rights to that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which Th- wasn't done. No, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but um, speaking of Sergio Leone, is he was a production assistant on the ultra famous movie Bicycle Thieves, which is in like all that's always in like top lists of movies oh, okay. of all time. Um, and he works in the swords and sandals genre of movies. Okay. Um, and he was an assistant director on some uh, uncredited assistant director on Ben Hur. Whoa. And then the there was a movie called The Last Days of Pompeii, and the director became ill, and Leon steps up to complete the movie, and he finishes it, and it becomes called The Colossus of Thodes or Toads. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, and that's his first movie. Hmm. And then he makes this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so all of that. Are we, are we still tracking mm-hmm. friends and family? Now, what I find just sort of interesting is, is he, he bridges the gap between like the two huge swings of Hollywood, which is really interesting. So he's like, Ben-Hur, which is maybe the most successful of the swords and sandals genre. Yeah. Um, and then and then he he has, like, the dying breath of, of that genre, and then he's, like, part of what becomes, like, the next big wave. Yeah. Because Westerns ruled Hollywood for decades. Mm-hmm. And, and it's always, you, you always hear people, I mean, I would say since, like, the early teens of the 2000 teens, saying, like, superhero movies are our current Western, Mm -hmm. and eventually they will die, Yeah, and it'll be something else. Which I agree to to some degree, but I think that superhero movies can actually, like, 
there's there's potential that they can adapt because they can have other genres whereas like a western is a western that's kind of the, to me that's a little bit of a um what's the word not the risk maybe risk i don't know i think i think superheroes can't last forever they shouldn't no i'm not i'm not sure they will but it makes sense that they're lasting so long because oh, totally because you can make I mean, like Logan, you can make a Western mm-hmm. that is a superhero movie. You you can do that. The problem is I feel like they don't commit enough mm-hmm. to those huge swings, but you, you can do it. So I think the potential for it to last is we're still a long way out from, like, Marvel not being on top, I think. Yeah. Long way. But, uh, yeah. Uh, the screenplay of this movie is by Sergio. It's also by Victor Andres Catina, uh, Jamie Comas-Gill, and then we have three uncredited writers, and I think this is where we get into like, I don't, I, I don't know who wrote what, because Sergio says, but he he says like I just wrote it off of this person's treatment, and I wrote the whole movie. Okay. And other people say other things, and Sergio's known to like. He also said like I actually directed all of the chariot say, okay. chase and Ben Hur, and it's like it's this, not true. This part he didn't. of film history is so wild because yeah. It just feels like people were stealing things from people constantly, and that was just how it worked. That's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, how you yeah. made a movie. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you just don't have the documentation or, like, the WGA rules yeah. and stuff like that. Like, this is these are the decades where they have to start making these rules because it's like, how come this writer wrote this movie and, like, the director has the writing credit yeah. or whatever? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so you have three uncredited writers, Fernando de Leo... Duccio Tessari, Tonino Valerie. And then the story is by Sergio, Andriano Balzani, Victor Andres, and Mark Lowell. And it's based on Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Uh, the cinematography is by Massimo Dalamono, Dalamano. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing at myself. Uh-huh. And then the music. Now, this is wild. This is the music by... Ennio Maricone. Now, if you don't aren't familiar with that name, get familiar, Buster. What was he billed for for this movie, though? Oh, I didn't write that part down. It was not that name. No, because they they would like use sometimes they would use like more Americanized names, at least for the American release of the movie. Yeah. And I don't know. Just reading about it, to me, it it didn't have that stink of like this is a racism thing or like a like oh american it, it oh, seemed I like i think it's a definitely a, you think so oh yeah because I, I i think you you hear and see even in movies that are made today that are about hollywood at that time uh-huh. and there's this person trying to become an actor and it's like oh your name's too jewish we have to yeah i guess you gotta right. change it to this yeah, it, it's you're just, right. it is yeah yeah never mind it just it felt like the when when I was reading about it, it at least the way it was phrased, it seemed like the makers of the movie like were like, "Oh, let's just do that." Not not like they were being told to do it. Yeah. But I guess if you're influenced to do that to protect yourself, that's basically being forced to do I, it. I so, do think because this is also the '60s. This is like Cold War time. I mean, this is I'm getting conspiracy crazy yeah, about yeah. it. I know this, but like people are not trusting of foreign foreigners. Yeah, and like I yeah. think especially at a time like in that time of history. So it's like, uh, I I do think that there was an emph- emphasis on like American made, 
yeah, American, yeah. like all this like USA kind of stuff that yeah, I think people would be I distrusting. Right. I'm I'm very wrong. I got that's why a it's lot so exciting that face. Parasite won so many Oscars. Yeah, it only took it only took so long, whew, yeah. long time. Um, but yeah, so Ennio Morricone, Morricone, uh, he he is you when you hear a Western style score with the the cracks of the whip and and the flutes and all this stuff whistling the whistling that's him that he created that he basically from what i understand maybe someone can cite something earlier but he like created this style and this is like what we identify as how western sound and if you think you don't know who this person is and you have seen the hateful eight you have heard this person's score before because yeah. Tarantino brought this man out of retirement for to his final score, score movie. and he won an Oscar for yeah. it. Yeah, but he, uh, I mean, and everybody's heard, ay, 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 wah, wah, wah. Mm-hmm. you know, from from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I mean, that's like the most one of the most iconic scores. Yeah, um, and this one too. I was, it's just like so incredible, and it surprised me to know that he basically created this genre because it sounded so fleshed out in this movie. It was like, well, surely they've been doing this for a few years. And this is maybe like the defining score where it puts it all together. But from what I could tell and what I understand, it's like, no, no, this is just the movie and it comes out fully formed, like right out of the gate. So did you say part of that was because he couldn't? Oh, yeah. Uh, Because, and this is just direct rip here. Uh, because budget structures limited Morricone's access to a full orchestra, he used gunshots, cracking whips, whistles, voices. I believe this is an outdated term. Uh, Jew har- Jews harp, trumpets, and the new Fender electric guitar. Instead of orchestral arrangements of Western standards a la John Ford, Morricone used his special effects to punctuate and con- comically tweak the action, cluing in the audience to the taciturn man's ironic stance. And it is so good. Mm-hmm. So the movie comes out in Italy in nine, I mean, September 12th, 1964. It has a $200,000 budget and it makes $3.5 million worldwide. I believe it was released in the US in 67. Okay. And it was a smash hit. Yeah. And what I also didn't realize is this man, Clint Eastwood, had never starred in a movie before. Wow, this is the first. So this is his first starring role. He'd been in a show. He'd been in shows and movies, of course, for a while. But he was in a show called Rawhide. Okay, which yeah, is a I've western show. Yeah. But he was saying he was getting tired of like being the you know the guy who comes and saves the day, and he gets the kiss from the girl, and and he's like a humble brag, <laughs> <laughs> a knight in shining armor kind of yeah. thing. So this was like really exciting. Yeah. Prospect. Um, That's interesting. That reminds me of Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sergio Leone. Made by a man who loves Sergio Leone. Yeah. Um, And it's just interesting with his character. He was always the bad guy. There was a name for it. I can't remember. Um, But he was always the bad guy. And he was trying to break out and be the Clint. He was trying to be a Clint Eastwood. Yeah. But. From what from what I understand from watching that movie and and 
and not having researched this, but I well, know I guess not Clint Eastwood because that was the sixties, and that's probably before this movie came out. But you know what I mean. Yeah, but I, I didn't realize that this was like uh, something that actors did. But I know that Quentin Tarantino didn't just make it up where it's like, oh, my career's doing really bad. I'm going to go to Europe and make a bunch of movies, yeah. make a lot of money, and like get my credit back and then come back. Yeah. And start getting better roles. It's like it's like someone getting drafted to the NBA and they spend like five years in Spain before they actually play yeah. on the team that they were drafted to. Yeah. And I just didn't, I didn't realize that was a thing that actors did. Not anymore though, right? I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah. Because I, I think... I think the thing you do to to cut your teeth and to get like the critical success is work with a bunch of independent studios. Yeah. And get your A24 movie made and maybe a Blumhouse movie or something yeah. like that and then you can do your own stuff. Yeah. Um but yeah. Uh so due to the low budget of this movie and its extreme success after it comes out everyone in Hollywood is like let's find an anti-hero who looks like Clint Eastwood. And let's have similar plots because we can make this stuff cheap. Mm -hmm. And then that's what spurns. I sing this again. Spurns. Is that even a word? Yeah. Okay. That's what creates this genre. That's part of it is like the low budgetness of it. Isn't part of why it's so low budget is because sets are constantly being repurposed and reused. I, yeah, that would because there's and, or they're so cheaply made. Probably both. Because they're just fronts. They're not, you know, obviously. Yeah. But that's definitely part of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, because and, and the other thing to mention is is yeah, like 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 we said before this, we had the John Waynes and then like John Ford movies that 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 it was it was pure, and and now now we're, get, we're gritting it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, the movie was originally titled The Magnificent Stranger, and um, let's see. Uh, Sergio wanted Henry Fonda originally, but he was too expensive. And he also talked to Charles Bronson, who thought the script was bad. He will later work with both of those actors in Once Upon a Time in... Uh, the West. The West. <laughs> I wanted to say Hollywood, and I'm like, it's not that. It's not that. Okay, it's not can you that. remind me about Charles Bronson? That's different. Than There's the... two Charles Bronsons. Okay, and the the other one is the really terrible, nasty in prison one that yep. Tom Hardy portrayed in that movie. The is it Brit- Britain's most notorious prisoner? Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, and then there's Charles Bronson, the actor. Cool. Just needed to connect some dots. Yeah. Um, and then Richard Harrison, uh, was approached, but he didn't want to do another Italian western because he had done one and. Didn't like the experience. Okay. And he said, why don't you guys talk to this guy named Clint Eastwood and see if he'll do it. And thus... Why don't you guys set up this guy's, the rest of this guy's life? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, actually, that's all the notes there. So we, we got it all. Crazy. You got anything to add or... Um, well, yeah, I'll talk about a, a couple people. So you talked about Eastwood. Um, but Gian Maria Volante plays Ramon. Um, he is also in, he's in the next movie, but also Les, Cir- Les Circle Rouge. Um, he is from Milan, by the way. Okay. Um, wait, he's not Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's in open doors. I mean, but also he is in a ton, mostly Italian movies. Yeah. Um, I know, and I, 
I, it's kind of bad because I like to be, I like to let everybody know, you know, where where like the writers and cinematographers are from. But when I looked into these people, it's like it's all '60s and '70s Italian movies. It's like we don't know. I don't think our audience well, knows. Well, this is like a time when people's filmographies are like hundreds <laughs> yeah, of yeah, things, yeah, yeah. hundreds of things. Uh, Marianne, M- Marianne. Koch, I don't know how to pronounce last name spelled like this. K O C H. She plays Marisol. Um, she is German. Okay. She's the the main girl. Wait a second. She's not Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> she is in the Devil's General. Okay, actually, you guys, she's just in a lot of German things. <laughs> I'm not going to try and pronounce these things that I can't pronounce. Um, but mostly, yeah, mostly in German films. Wolfgang Lexchi uh, plays John Baxter. He's the head of the Baxter gang. Um, also German, which means in a lot of German movies. Oh. No, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that family was actually German. Yeah. I, everyone had an accent. Yeah, and I don't think Baxter, I don't think Baxter's a, yeah. Well, they definitely are not Mexican. No. I'm telling you that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Esteban Rupp. <laughs> Can I mention something about? So this movie uh, has a lot of brown face in it. What one, one? One in particular. This man. This is a man. Oh yeah. Uh, so Esteban Rojo. Okay, Esteban Rojo is played by Sirkart Rupp. This man is Austrian, and he had like <laughs> he had like the iciest blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was wait. It, <laughs> so he's not Mexican. <laughs> So he's in a, a lot of a lot of German Austrian stuff. Um But so can I say something? So obviously we are well past Hollywood doing stuff like this. It's not a good thing to do. We don't condone yeah. you know pretending you're a different race in a movie. Now, having said that, I I I will say I think as I've gotten older I I actually was pretty confused about who was who because of the brown face in this movie. Okay. Where I got confused about elements where I think when I watched this when I was younger, I was not confused. Oh. Where where it was just kind of like, wait, who's, wait, is this person part of this gang? or what? Because they're saying like, yeah, well, like there's the scene where they, they dress up as the Confederates and then they kill the Mexican army. And then, and then it turns out that they are also Mexican. They're part of the gang. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. But as I'm watching it, I'm I was just like, who is who? Because I people don't look American, and then they also don't look Mexican except for like the four or five actors that are clearly Mexican that are in the movie or Spanish maybe. Yeah. Um, well, if this was shot in Italy, probably probably Spanish. Spanish yeah. Um, but just having said that, I'm like, if if nothing else. It's maybe just too confusing to have people who who don't look like the people they're supposed to portray, <laughs> like yeah. dress that way and make up that way. And I, I found myself genuinely confused several times <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Mario Brega plays Chico. That's the bartender, the barkeep. Yeah. Um, not only is, there, is he in these movies, he's also in My Name Is Nobody, Crack, Monte Carlo Casino. Wait, Monte Carlo Grand Casino. Um. And he is also Italian, so he's in a lot of Italian movies as well. Oh, he's Italian? I actually thought he was Mexican no, or Spanish. He's Italian. Okay. Should we jump into the movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So it starts off with an animated sequence. Tell me about it while I take a note. What a cool animated sequence. It, it's just kind of showing clips of the movie and people fighting while it is showing the credits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the name of the sequence. We, we gotta, we, we have to, we, credits need to come back. Yeah. Can we talk about it for a moment? Sure. Well, Patrick's talk about, talked about it at great length. He has a, a great, great length. video. Great video by Patrick Willems. We're going to get you this year, Patrick. I swear it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. As he points out, it helps with the score because you have like three minutes where you you're like getting the score soaked into your head. It's kind of like overtures. He probably talks a lot about Bond in that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I think he doesn't because I think he's like that's an obvious one. I want to talk about some other ones and cool. how there was a trend where like all, like most big movies would have a sequence. Yeah. And um, now obviously be- because of our attention spans. People are don't don't like to do credits that much anymore, and I think someone like Christopher Nolan is so influential, and he doesn't even put the title of his movie usually until the end. But even TV shows with streaming, it's like skip the credits, skip the credits, skip the credits. So when we're making our opening title cards even shorter, and we still want you to skip the credits. Oh, I know. When when you watch The Mandalorian and it just goes. Dun, 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 says the Mandalorian. It's like five seconds long, and it gives you the option to skip it. That's crazy. If these you are, can't sit through five seconds, and these are a couple title credit sequences that you do not skip. This Sopranos, is, a number one with a bullet. Sopranos, you never skip that. We never skipped that once no. when we watched that show. Succession, that Don't is skip a it. very long opening intro, <laughs> and you <laughs> never <laughs> skip <laughs> it because it's so good. <laughs> we also never skipped what we do uh, in the shadows. Bum, bum, bum. Oh. Uh, wait, that's a great uh, one too. And I didn't do Sopranos. <laughs> and you never skip the Simpsons. And you never skip the Simpsons. And all those are like iconic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how iconic what we do in the shadows is, but it's just I a great think song. it is. It's a great song. Uh, which we recently found out is a song from like the '60s. I thought it was like a new release. <laughs> Me too. Um, but yeah, I really think credits should be back, and I think people need to cool it and stop skipping them. Yeah. You're watching a show, don't skip the credits. Yep. Um, and, and I think with movies, too, like like we, we, we saw Glass Onion, mm-hmm. which hopefully you've all seen by now since it's out, and it's a great movie, but how cool would it be, like Pink Panther style, have an animated sequence of Mr. Daniel Craig, like... Going through and like solving a mystery that's all animated, oh, and it shows I would all the cast. Love that so much. But I, I think it's just not something that people are really able to do anymore. Yeah, and it's so silly. It's so silly that, and I know Patrick mentions this in his video, but it's so silly that Marvel and superhero movies of all the movies, you are born of a medium that is art driven. Why do you not have title credit sequences? Oh yeah, there there's no excuse for it. Yeah, it's crazy. And I know this sounds kind of like I'm your mom right now telling you this, but a lot of people work hard on movies, and so it is good to have opening credits to force you to sit through that. Yeah, so that you can appreciate these what these people did for you. Think about one of my favorites, Spider-Man Two. It starts off you have these beautiful, like pastel oil paintings of stills from the first movie. 
by Alex Perry, I think, or Alex Ross or something like that, who's a comic book artist. So they hired him. He makes these beautiful things. And then you go, oh, yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's what happened. And you don't need a character later who's like, hey, remember when you fought Norman Osborn? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm refreshed. I'm ready to go. And guess what? I remember the score to Spider-Man because of that. Yeah. Well, and also I watched those movies a million times. But we got to bring it back. Mm -hmm. I'm sick of this no credits crap. I'm cutting the crap right now. Okay. So this movie has a credit scene. That's very nice. Um, it I, what it was of the best music too. That's <laughs> that's a note I have. What do you think? How do you think Clint Eastwood looks? Fantastic. Yeah. What do you? How do you think? He's a snack. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so we're introduced to this little boy who's getting shot out, shot at outside. Yeah. It has been a while since we've watched a movie this old with the dubbing this off. It took it was a little bit of an adjustment for me. Oh. And that's not a complaint, that's just old movie stuff. And no, we should talk about this. This oh, okay. is unusual for the time. Okay. So these Italian westerns, spaghetti westerns, all three of these movies, there is no sound captured on set. They do not they do not is that how things are done in Italy? That's how they did it back then for these movies. Um, what do you mean these movies? These Italian spaghetti these westerns. These movies? Do you hear yourself? <laughs> because I kind of feel like Dario Argento movies are the same. Yeah, I, I mean, I think back in the 60s and 70s, they were much looser with dubs and more yeah, obvious with we, them. I think we looked it up because we were watching a Dario Argento movie. Yeah. And it was wild, yeah. the dubbing, like yeah. wild. And I think we found out that in Italy or something, like it was just so much more common not to capture sound. That makes sense. Like that was just part of the practice. Yeah. Well, And, and I know, um, yeah, because I remember rewatching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, like, I don't know, nine years ago, and it was the first time I'd watched it as an adult. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like what's wrong with the DVD? Oh. <laughs> and I and then I'm like online, like looking through stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is how it is. So have they been? Has it been remastered though? I'm sure. Is it possible to even remaster that? No, no, no. They. I don't think anyone would do that because it, because it's, it's too much a part of it. Well, I I think that that would be akin to like, oh, let's colorize. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, you can do it. People have done it, but that's not how it was made. So why would you do that? Okay, sure. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. So this movie, it's it is zero zero stuff caught on set on sound. It is all overdubbed, and that's how it's going to be for all three of these movies. Yeah. So buckle up. Yeah, buckle up. And and you know, I think we've noticed in watching a lot of Indian movies. I think it's a common practice over there too. It seems. Well, that's especially because not for all Indian movies that we've seen, but many of them are like presented in several different languages. Yeah. So it's hard to find out what's the original. Because India has like 55 languages or something crazy yeah, like that. Yeah, and if, if a movie is filmed in Tollywood, it could, you might have the, all these different options. But if it's in Bollywood, you might have all these different options. Yeah. So for them, I think, I think that totally makes sense where it's like, why even? Let's just get one of the languages on set and then we can overdub like two others. Yeah. You know, like that seems more inbred into the process. Yeah. But, you know, in America... In English speaking movies, I think it's a lot less common to overdub. I mean, I think, I think also editors, and especially with, you know, having programs like Logic Pro, I'm pointing behind me because that's what we're using and stuff like that. It's a lot easier to match things up and put them in 
certain certain sections when people are talking and whatnot. Okay. So dubbing is interesting and yeah. it's necessary, but so before the kid runs across the thing though, yeah, we get the man with no name billed as Joe. Yeah, on IMDb, so he does have a name. Technically, what, what I did find out though, looking into that, is each movie someone calls him something. Cool. So it's so still this movie tracks. Is Joe, but Clint Eastwood's the man with no name. Yeah. He comes sauntering in to this watering hole and is drinking out of this well when he sees there are these two houses across from each other and a kid runs out to the other one and like climbs through a window to get in. Yeah. And he's just observing this. And then a man carries the kid out, throws, basically throws the kid back to the other house with this, the dad that came outside and is like threatening their lives. Like, don't ever come in here. There's yeah. some woman looking forlornly outside the house that the kid had run into. And then she sees uh, the man with no name. And he's just, like I said, observing like whatever. Yeah. And just I, don't affect me. And, and I, I think right there you have like the statement of intent. That's like, wait, this movie, like if we were at the time and had seen a bunch of Westerns, I think in that one scene, we would have been like, Oh, this is really different because if this is John Wayne, he's going to like run in there and go help the kid right there. Yeah. And Clint's like, I don't know. I better see what's happening before I make a jump. Yep. But then he just saunters on by. Yeah, He just goes into town. Yep. And it's a basically seems like a ghost town. People are just like, like just running into their houses, not, not milling around. Um, and he finds the, no milling, no milling in this town. No. He finds the cantina. Yep. Um, well, before that, he comes across the Bra- the Baxters. Yeah. And uh, love that he rides a mule. Interesting. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love it. Um, rides a mule, passes by the Baxters' domain. They rough him up a little bit, shoot his feet, makes him makes the mule dance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he goes riding off and stops at the cantina. Yeah, and the and the mule escapes. Mule escapes. Mule's fine. And so he talks to the guy at the cantina, and you know he's like, "I don't have money, but but maybe there's money to be made here," kind of a thing. And he learns about the town. Yeah, he finds out that there's two bosses in town. There's the Baxters, and then I don't remember the Rojos. The, the Rojos, and they're kind of like a warring gang, warring over the land and whatnot. And he sees this as an opportunity. Yes. So once the, again, the Rojos trade in liquor. Oh, okay. The Baxters do something else. <laughs> okay. I can't remember what they do. But, um, and, and I think again, uh, you know, I, I didn't live through this time period, but I think again, right there, you would also think like, oh, this is kind of a different story. But I think, I bet some people are thinking like, oh, he's going to save this town. Right. And I like that they established like basically the, the coffin maker is kind of like the richest person. I mean, he doesn't look rich or anything, but you know, but he is like the most profitable man in this town because people are getting killed constantly because of these warring gangs. Yeah. People just shoot each other up. Like it's nobody's business. I mean, he's like preparing a coffin for the man with no name. Yeah. The barkeep says he can measure a man knows a man's coffin size now just by looking at him. Yeah. He doesn't need to measure him. And did you remember in Back to the Future 3, that same bit happens, but it's more comedic. No. Remember, as he's going out, the coffin maker comes up to him, and he's, like, measuring him. (laughs) So it is, I mean, you know, they're clearly fans of this movie. A lot of references to it in that. Um, 
And then he goes up to the Rojos or the Baxters. He well, okay, so he's he decides he's oh he's gonna get he's gonna uh get a job be- from one of them, uh-huh. and he decides to go to the Rojos. Yeah. So he w- walks over to the Baxters. Then yeah, it's the Baxters he walks over to yep. who knocked him off his mule, and he says the following quote, which is my favorite of the, of this movie. I think I think this is like my favorite part because he says. I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. He gets the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to do, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. <laughs> Come on. Really good. That's so good. So he says and that, and then they're they're like laughing and whatever, and then they realize, oh, this is kind of serious. Oh, let's just kill this guy. Have this beautiful shot. It's really close up to his gun, and mm-hmm. that's in the the top left corner or or the bottom uh bottom left corner and then you see in the background all four baxter sitting on the fence he draws the gun shoots all four of them before they get their guns out and they all die and it's all in this one shot and right there it's like that is the definition of the spaghetti western like that shot is like if you do that You've made a spaghetti western. Uh, yeah. Like here's your certificate. Unreal, <laughs> unreal. You yeah. know it's so visually uh, appealing. So then he goes over to the Rojos and is like, "Look what I just did." Yeah. For you guys. Oh, and but before that, he walks by the coffin maker and he says, "Get three coffins ready." That's right. Shoots them, comes back, and he said, "My mistake, four. <laughs> <laughs> and Come then he on. goes to the Rojos. And this is why dads love these movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and. They pay him a hundred bucks. Yeah. And he wants to start getting on their payroll. So yeah. now he's in with the crew. They're like, oh, everyone who works for us stays with us. This big house. Yeah. Let us show you your room. And then he goes in the room and he's like, nah, I don't like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he leaves and goes and sleeps in the same room as the barkeep, which is just kind of cute. Yeah. The setup. Um, but he, so he's like technically in cahoots with the Rojos, but he still wants to kind of like, still trying to learn about this town a little bit. Yeah. To really see where the money's going to be made. Yeah. So is that when more or less we go to the, the, oh, no, no, no the, the Mexican army shows up. Yep. And they have, it's, it's a ton of them. They have a stagecoach and, uh, the man with no name wants to know what's in the stagecoach, and I think the barkeep says, "We'll go up to him, and if they point a gun in your face, there's gold in there." Yeah, if they, if they try to shoot you, there's gold in there. Yeah, and he goes in and he he tries to look, and there's a guy inside that puts a gun up to his his face. Yeah. Okay, there's gold. Yeah. And then we have like the massacre scene. <laughs> I like what before he did that though. Uh-huh. He goes up to the there's a man standing outside of the stagecoach. Yeah. And he by to distract this man. He looks at the man's horse, kind of looks it in the eye, and he's like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then the the stagecoach goes through to, like, the outskirts. Mm-hmm. And, Where they're and, meeting the Americans. Yes, to give the them US gold. Army. To give them the gold. I think it's giving them gold. I, I, I think they're giving them gold in exchange for firearms. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Yes. And then the Confederates just fire and kill all of them. Yeah. And... Then it's revealed that it's the Rojos gang in disguise. Yeah, because it cuts to in one of the U.S. armies or the Confederates' wagons are a bunch of dead, uh, dead white people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's 
that happens. So the so the <laughs> Rojos get the gold and they get the firearms because they already killed the Americans to get the firearms. Right. So now now they just got a ton of stuff. Double crossed, as it were. That that's a classic double cross. Um. Yeah, and then so so then he, the man with no name has an idea, and he takes two of the dead actual Confederates, and he puts them in a cemetery around a grave and he goes to uh which one does he go to first he goes to the baxters which it auto corrected to badgers because i guess baxters isn't a word um and he says hey there's two confederate soldiers down well those aren't confederate soldiers they were mexican soldiers oh oh it's mexican soldiers so he says there's two down there um, I forget his reasoning that would make them interested in that. I, I forget too. And, and then he convinces them. They give him 500 bucks. And then he goes to uh, Ramon and the gang. And he says, hey, there's two guys down there. Cause, oh, yeah. Because to the Baxters, he's like, they might know about this massacre. These two Mexican guys that survived. And yeah. then to the Rojos, he's like, there's loose ends. There's two Mexicans down oh. there. Oh, and so then they all meet up down there. Yeah. Uh, well, they don't like meet up, but he's now p- pinned them against each other, and he's a thousand bucks richer. And they have a shootout. And they have a big shootout. Um, I don't think they pay him. They both they both oh, pay okay. him five hundred dollars. Because at one point he gives back the hundred dollars. Yeah. But that's fine. But yeah, yeah, so there's a big shootout between the two gangs. People are killed. So now now it's like it's escalated, the gangs. Yeah. And he's, meanwhile, he's in the Rojos town. Or I mean, uh, uh, like where they hide stuff and he's trying to find the gold that that's they right. stole. So he's tapping on all these barrels. And it, it's great because you're, you're just kind of like, the movie doesn't hold your hand. So it, it's kind of confusing, I think. Yeah. But as you're as this is happening, you're kind of like, what what is his plan? Like, what is he doing? And I think that's actually advantageous to the movie. Yeah. Is is being a little confused. I mean, you feel like you're one of the gang members or something where you're like, I don't know what this guy's trying to do here. Yeah. And he's tapping on stuff and you're like, okay, I know he's looking for gold, but what's he going to do when he finds it or, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And um, someone is coming into the barrel room. And he just doesn't matter Socks who it is, face. punches the first person who comes yeah. in. Happens to be Marisol, which is uh, a woman that we find out in a little bit, but that the Rojos gang kidnapped. And uh, she's, a, there, she's their hostage. Because a while ago, her husband was playing cards with the Rojos and allegedly got in and over his head on, the, on debt. Uh-huh. So they're like, well, we're just going to take your wife. It's Ramon's wife now. Yeah. And you and your kid got to get out of Dodge. Yeah. Now, I think we will probably find a better example of this in the following two movies. Okay. But this is something I've been thinking about in the last, like, maybe six months of movies. Is that I think because of the internet and how things are discussed on the internet, I think that the heroes of movies are hardly ever to be able to be, like, morally complicated uh, at least in like big budget movies, it's like you're a good guy like all the way, or you're a bad guy all the way. Now I, I know there's some slight differences like Black Adam and Deadpool and stuff, but they're still like they're good guys. And I I kind of miss the realism of like, hey, this is our main character. He did just punch a woman. 
we shouldn't be like happy about that. Yeah. But it's like it makes him a little more like ambiguous and it's a little more interesting. I think actually for, for most good Marvel movies, the bad guys are really good because you sympathize with them. That's a that's a and different than that what I'm different. talking about. Oh, okay. Cuz I I mean like your main character. Oh. Okay. Cuz even like if you're uh, uh, to use a terrible example again, but it's on my mind like Black Adam. He yes, he's an anti-hero, but he does only kill like bad guys. So he's kind of just a hero who also murders and it's just kind of lame. There there's there's not really a gray area with him as much as the movie is telling you there is. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you just kind of suck. Yeah. And you should be better or you should be worse. Yeah. And and I just think another movie I think of is Tar. Okay. Which is a masterpiece and everyone should watch. And in that movie, it's like Lydia Tar allegedly, potentially has done something very bad. But she also has some ideas and some things and her work is really interesting to where I I think like I think this movie challenges you to say to think like I can't either only write her off or be totally on her side. Yeah. It it forces you to not choose a side. Yeah. And and I, I just think like the the ambiguity of the sixties and seventies with cinema, a movie like Taxi Driver. Yep. It's like all, all these movies, they they had like maybe more, more a little more morally complex characters than a lot of what we get now. Sure, that's yeah. just something I think. I just would have to think about that, but I, I do think there are still plenty of movies that are doing it. You know, like the Safdie brothers; their characters are always like very, very complex mm-hmm. characters, where you're on their side and you're not on their mm-hmm. side. But um, you know, as as much as the word antihero gets thrown around, especially in superhero movies i feel like we don't really have a lot of actual anti-heroes well, i think kind of the fun thing about like a safety brothers movie or even a tar movie and i know it's a, all a story it's all fictional and it's a movie so yes you do have your protagonists and your antagonists you have your heroes you're not yeah that, that's just a story thing but i think uh what is always so interesting about movies like safety brothers tar or like taxi driver is that uh, that's just about people yeah because that's just what people are right yeah, yeah, totally. Because that, it is. It w- I guess it would be harder to look at that at superheroes because that's not really superheroes aren't people. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Like they are. You know what I mean? But they're not. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I think that obviously the time we live in affects how movies are made, and and I do think that politically, in like the sixties and seventies, it w- it was this big paradigm shift where it's like, oh, we can't trust politicians or like they lied to us so there's like an ambiguity whereas i i do think we live in a time now where it's like and i find myself this way too where where i look at say a candidate for some office and i think to myself okay this person i hate them or i love them yeah i don't find many that i love unfortunately but but it's like oh they agree with this issue that i disagree with therefore this person is not a good person and they suck. And it's like, I can just write off the whole thing. And so I think that affects movies too, where it's like, like the time period we live in, it's like, we, we don't want to talk about the complexities of a lot of individuals. Like, we, yeah. you know, we, we would rather just write them off because it's easier. It's stressful. Yeah. I, another good example is Atlanta. Yeah. 
and that's just keep going people. with it though i just uh most of those characters even our main characters besides darius because he's perfect and a unicorn <laughs> but um m- most of those characters like for the most part you sympathize with them even when they're doing something that is like wrong uh-huh. like that one episode that we just watched with um donald glover's character like ruined this woman's life but we didn't know that until the end of the episode that that's what he orchestrated. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, he's doing better. He's doing good. He's going to therapy. He's figuring this out. And it's like, Oh no, he didn't learn anything. (laughs) Right. Right. He still, he still needs to go to therapy. Yeah. You know? So it's just a lot of those characters do things that are harmful to themselves and to each other. Right. But also that's just people. Right. And that, that's like, that's why that shows like such a great character study. Yeah. Well, and, uh, maybe I, I take back that we're not getting those types of characters because now you're citing so many well, where we I think, are. I do think we get them in shows. That That's yeah. where we get them most of the time. Yeah. And that's kind of like whenever you watch a show that you're really liking or something and like there's one character that you really don't like and you're kind of still in like the beginning of the show or whatever. Uh, and then you get to this one episode where, yeah, where, yeah. where it's like, oh, that's crap, why they tick. I have to sympathize with this person now. And I'm, I hate this character, but now I have to love him. And by the end of the episode, it's like, I love them. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But I, uh, yeah. And I think about someone like Adam McKay who I love, yeah. I love his, his movies and stuff, but they are, he does take gray issues and he turns them black and white for sure. Yeah. Like, and I, I like the movie vice. I like the movie, um, don't look up, but those movies are like all these characters are black or white. Yes. Um, and I don't think any of them are white really. Well, I kind of <laughs> think the thing with don't look up is that's like really intentional. Yeah. Because that is the world we live in. And he's just, he, it's a mirror. Yeah. Well, and, but, and I think politically that's where we're at, where, yeah. where at least like, at least if you're making something political, you don't want to make something that has a gray area Yeah. because we're all sick of it. And, and, if you believe one thing, you're not going to be convinced of the other. And do you mean like actually political, like things we vote on? Because yeah. Tar is a very political movie. Yeah, I'm talking ways. literal politic okay. movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so that's that's that. So thanks for listening. Uh-huh. Right. Sure. Um. Then he takes Maria. Uh, Menounos. <laughs> <laughs> Marisol. <laughs> Yes. Takes um, her to the Baxters because he knocks her out cold. Yeah. And um, basically gives them the opportunity to be like, Rojos, we have your lady. Yeah. We will give her back to you peacefully, but we must meet about it. Yeah. And so then there's like the mother and son trade off in the town. They don't trade the son. The son was never kidnapped. Oh, no. I mean, they, they do the trade off with, with the but mother. The son's and the. the with the, the son is there in the cantina crying yeah. and runs out to his mom. And that's when we find out her backstory. Yeah. And, and I think, I think this is when the movie you, you start being like, Oh, okay. I understand yeah. what's happening. Yeah. And, and again, I think as the movie was going, I was like, I'm kind of having trouble following this movie a little bit, but I felt like in this scene, it, the, the key turned and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm tracking now. Um, and I think that's by design. Whether, I think so too. Yeah, I, th- I I was about to say I think it's by design, whether intentional or not, which would mean it's not by design. <laughs> I think it's by design. Yeah. And so now Clint is going to take a he is going to make like a moral morally good decision because then he goes to the small house. Um, I, I called it small house. I don't think they call it that in the movie where Maria's at. Mar- Marisol. Marisol. 
Um, and he kills everybody in there except for one guy, I think. Okay. No, he kills him. He kills everybody in there and saves her and then brings her back, like walks across the street uh, to her husband and son and give, you know, give some money. You guys give some money and says, go now. Yeah. They're coming after you now. And, and I, I do, it's such a movie thing. I just love that. They look at him and they're like, why do you do it? Well, th- this part I love. He goes, why did you help us? And he says, because I knew someone like you once, but there was no one to help. Yeah. Which is enough. Sometimes that's all you need I know, for movies. And I love that this movie was made in 1965. Four. Four. And just to know, I mean, I haven't seen the other two movies, but I'm just assuming we ain't getting that story Mm-mm. because we don't effing need it. No. That, that would like discredit how mysterious this man is. I know. But whenever they do the Disney Plus don't, t- twelve don't, episode don't even say series, it's blasphemous. <laughs> um, so, but, but I, but the, this is like the such a movie thing that is so funny you know what to me. I've actually been wondering about. <laughs> okay, I've been like so like for years and uh-huh. years. What uh-huh. I've been curious about the family dynamic between Santa Claus and his family, the Santa Claus oh. dynamic. <laughs> is that show out yet? I, I mean, I, I know it, it is, is when this this aired, but I, I think it is. Who is watching that? Nobody's watching <laughs> no that, right? Watching that. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, <laughs> I thought you were serious, so I was really trying to. Um, oh man, what what <laughs> really threw you off? <laughs> but okay, so this is such a movie thing that's so funny. Is we can hear the thunder of the hooves of the Rojos gang coming up. You mean them slapping coconuts together like in Bonty Python? <laughs> and he says, get out of here. And they just gently start sauntering away. Mm-hmm. Very kind of slow. Yeah. And I'm like, they're definitely going to see you and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> like 100%. Yeah. What are you doing? Get going. But, you know, they off screen made it off safe. We yeah. know that. Uh, then they capture the man with no name. They beat him up like crazy. And and when they do this, man, the, the makeup's come a long way. Yeah, and it's it's pretty bad makeup, and it also like it's ugly to look at because it looks so bad. Mm-hmm. But it, it it gets the point across. Yeah, uh, they beat him up like crazy. Then he pushes a large barrel. Well, what happens in between that? No, no, no. Huh? He um, they beat him up like crazy, and then something happens, and then we cut back to him doing the barrel thing. Yeah. But you didn't write down what, huh? No, I didn't write that. I didn't write down the thing that happened. Um, I mean, I just wish I could remember. Anyway, so time passes, and they come back to check on him, and he rolls a uh, Donkey Kong-sized barrel. <laughs> yeah, he Donkey Kongs. <laughs> he wow. Donkey Kongs them. Um, this is 1964. <gasps> Nintendo 64. <gasps> Somebody had an idea. Yeah. Somebody um, in Japan saw this movie and thought, <laughs> I want to invent something. Or maybe they had by now. I don't know. Did it come out in 1964 because of... No. No? No. Yeah, that's so dumb to think <laughs> no, that. It didn't. Keep talking. I want to look up when... So the- he does that. He escapes. All the other dudes come in, and he lights a fire in there. Um, and then yeah. he runs away. Um, oh, yeah, and then he, he meets up with... Uh, You're so wrong. The, the company Nintendo was founded in 1989. I'm so Micah- right. Wait. <laughs> Whoa! Wait, I misread it. What? I'm. I am not. Jo- this is gonna sound like I'm kidding. Okay. 
This says on Wikipedia, founded September 23rd, 1889. Whoa. You know what? I thought you meant the console night. No, I did. 1964. 1964 is what I said. Oh, he made playing cards. Oh, cool. Nintendo. Wait, is Nintendo the name of the person? Nintendo Karuta. Well, a first. Oh, well. No, yeah. no, 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 no. So Nintendo in 1889 was founded as the company Nintendo Karuta by craftsman Fuzajiro Yamauchi and originally produced handmade Hanafuda playing cards. Uh, and then had various. Well, I bet those are so valuable. Oh, probably. Had various uh, lines of business until the 1960s. Uh, and then in 1977, they made their first console, the Color TV game. It gained international recognition with the release of Donkey Kong in 1981 and the Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Mario Brothers in 1985. Wow. So it is a 133-year-old company. Very cool. So I'm really glad I looked that up. Go ahead. Burns the town, is hiding. No, he was not burning the town. The um, <laughs> He hides in a coffin. Everyone's looking for him, and he hides in a coffin, and he yeah. gets the coffin maker to to hide him in the mines. Yeah. So he's hiding out in the mines, recovering. Meanwhile, well, yeah, so he, he's, then uh, something else happens. You probably didn't write it down. Um, <laughs> he's recovering, and he's testing out bullets on steel sheet metal. Yeah. Um, don't know why. Yeah, it's great. Um. It's great, too, because throughout, like, a couple times already in this movie, we see a, like, old armor that is used for target practice. So yeah. it, that that was, like, a fun um, yeah. well, foreshadowing. And, and Ramon shoots a heart into the armor, and he's, like, yeah. always aim for the heart. Yep. So there's there's the, like, setup that if he covers his heart, he's going to be okay. Yeah. So he... He does all that while I think while this is happening, the uh, the Rojos bomb and set on fire the Baxters' home. Yeah, instead. Um, oh, and they kill like everybody. they kill everybody, and they're looking for him. And so they're looking for him. Oh yeah, so they think that they have him, and they kill everybody, burn the place down. He doesn't stop them. See, that's the that's the like morally complex thing about it is this is the he is the reason all of this is happening. Oh yeah. Absolutely, and and he is not, like, I mean, he doesn't even really seem remorseful about it. No, well, it's, I think, I wonder if part of it's kind of like both of these people are just terrible people. They yeah. all deserve to die. But, like, the, the Baxter wife gets killed. I know. And, like, everybody in the Baxter gang gets killed. Yeah. Everybody. And that's, like, the town, seemingly. So there's, like, only the Rojos and, like, the Cantina and the Coffin Maker left. I think there are other people there, but, yeah. Well, yeah, from, from what we've seen, though, I think that's they're too scared like. to come out. Yeah. But, yeah, so they kill everybody, and then they turn to the cantina barkeep. Yeah. Um, and they start torturing him, but the coffin maker is like, that guy will never talk. You don't have to worry about him. Um, but as they're torturing him and, like, strung him up, a uh, man with no name comes back, uh-huh. and they have a face-off. Yeah. A Mexican standoff, literally. Yeah. And he... Shoots him. Well, first of all, there's an incredible Spurs shot yeah. of Rojo's Spurs. That just is amazing. Um, he shoots him right in the heart. Ramon shoots. Clint. No, wait. He no, falls wait. over. He gets up. He says, 
He says, what's wrong, Ramon? You losing your touch? He shoots him again. He sh- keeps on shooting him. As he's him. shooting them, everyone on the Rojos, man, they're acting so good. They all look so scared. I know. It's so great. Yeah. And then he eventually pulls back his poncho in the most epic pullback of a poncho we've ever seen. Pulls out the metal, drops it on the ground after I think Ramon's like clicked his gun. Yeah. So he knows he's out. Or maybe he just counted six shots. And then um, he Does kills. Does gun only shoot six? Well, these are six shooters. Oh, no, but he has a rifle. I forgot. He's got the lever action, which is great. Um, And so he kills everyone in the gang except for Ramon. The man with no name does. Yes. And he shoots him, but doesn't kill him. Um, And then he goes, go ahead and load up and shoot. Go ahead. And then Ramon starts loading up the gun, and he loads up his, and then he beats him to the draw. Kills him. Yeah. Well, of course. He just keeps saying he and he. Well, yeah, it could be anybody. He and he. Everybody knows. I mean, hopefully you watch the movie. Yeah, and it's just so epic. Yeah, um, and it it still works in 2022 after seeing a million movies. Oh yeah, and the, it's this, still great. The blocking in the shot is so good. So he, he well he comes over. He um, well I think the coffin maker lets no he lets the man with no name lets the the barkeep free. Yeah, I mean they're they're talking and behind them in the background the uh coffin guy is going up to everyone and measuring them all the dead people (laughs) he has the cameras panning up and he's leaving the town yeah so he came through he got his money he in a way kind of saved the town yeah kind of destroyed a lot of it he's on to the next town yep he's the drifter the man with no name yep great movie if you haven't seen it and you are a film buff you have to watch it. It's also like an hour and a half, a little bit more. Yeah, hour forty. No, it, this is a must. This is a much must watch movie for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we did it. Yeah. I want to tell our listeners about something though. What? You have to go to Patreon.com/slash Micah McCaw. You have to, and you want to know why? Because this month we're talking about Avatar: The Way of Water. Now, we haven't seen it as of this recording, but I am assuming, holy cow, what a masterpiece. So listen to us talk about that movie and sign up for as little as $3. And uh, I went to a coffee shop today, and it was over $4 for a cup of coffee. So guess what? That's less than a cup of coffee. Just do it. And and you get so many episodes. We have such a library now of of episodes that are not going to ever be released on the main feed. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, occasionally we do release one or two, but uh, uh, you know, there's so many that won't be. I think I think there's probably like probably thirty maybe mm-hmm. exclusive episodes. So sign up for it. Let's get Jordan and I out of our jobs forever and doing this all the time. How about that? How about that? Okay. <laughs> but thank you for listening. And then and then also this. If maybe you don't want to sign up for Patreon, that's okay. Why don't you just go to your Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and write a tiny review? Tiny review. And then send it to a friend. What those are your three That'd options. Be cool. That'd be real cool. And uh let's have a good 2023. Yippee Kaye. Next week it is for a few dollars more. Cha-ching. <laughs>